The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. The scripture reading for this morning is from Philippians 3, 12 through 20. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have told you, whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You may be seated. If you're in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to our children's church, please join our volunteers over by the Kids Zone sign. Thank you, Ross and Neha. All right, that's going to stay there for now. Um, It is a sweet morning. Get to baptize Alice, and we get to see about how God is using City Church Manchester to advance the kingdom all over the world. It's been particularly sweet that when you Venmo, when you write a check, when you use our website, to give money to a small church plant in Chattanooga, Tennessee, one of the most churched cities in all of the world. What you're doing is giving money really to Manchester with less than 1% of gospel preaching churches that people attend. It's one of the ways that we call you to partner with us generously is because we want to do ministry here, but we want to do ministry in this city and all over the world. So continue to join us in our mission. We will be finishing Philippians 3 today. If you'd like to keep it open, we'll be making reference back to it. It's one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible, really. Because Paul, as he's calling Christians to follow him, as he's calling Christians to press on, even though things are difficult, even though there are people that are making their lives difficult, that's making ministry difficult, that's splitting up the church. Paul has this very human moment where he acknowledges that he doesn't have it all together. It's sort of his way of saying, it's okay that I'm not okay. So as is our tradition, I would love for you to join me in the second half of that phrase. It's okay 
Y'all, come on now. It's okay. It's okay that I'm not okay. And we see that beautifully worked through by Paul in this text. So would you pray with me? And let's ask God to bless our study of his word this morning. Let's pray. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? Would you work powerfully through your Holy Spirit in these few moments? We need you to lift our chins. It's been a hard year. At home, because of all of the extra hours, all of the extra frustration and proximity. It's been hard out in our city. It's been hard in our country and all over the world. It would be easy for us to want to give up. We ask by your Holy Spirit that you would empower us, that by your kindness we would not only give up, but we would press on. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. One of the things that we did this year that we haven't done previously is cross-country for my older two boys. It's Knox and Cormac, 11 and 9 years old, and we did cross-country, and I didn't know they had cross-country for kids that young. But what it is, is they essentially put all the kids, line them up in the yard, and they have them sprint a mile. Because they're not quite ready for the 3.2 or the 5.6 or whatever. So they line them up, and they basically go, go get it, and they run. And I always think it's funny that uh, as you're a little kid's cross-country coach, part of the job is to be like, here's what I want you to do. I want you to run as fast as you can until it's over. And we'll talk about more next practice. Just over and over again, as fast as you can. And one of the cute things that we've seen happen is that Cormac, who really has a gift for running, has this ability to do what runners do, which is to push past pain, to push past anything that would slow them down. And if you've ever seen one of those ultra marathon runners, you know, when they're bringing it in after like 12 hours of running, you know how they're kind of like moving their legs and they've they're exhausted and they can barely make it and they're about to fall over. That's what Cormac looks like when he's finishing one mile. He has nothing left. He has given it all so that he's wobbly legs coming in. He literally, Aaron and I are afraid that he's going to pass out and he runs and he does well. Well, Paul is saying to us in the midst of our difficulties inside the church and outside the church, in the city and all over the world, what Paul is saying to us is leave nothing left. Run. Paul is saying get after it to this discouraged church. But before he tells them about how he's pressing on to reach the goal, he's straining towards what is head, he acknowledges what is true about him is that he hasn't obtained it yet. And so what I want you to see is Paul's posture of living like a Christian and how that's supposed to affect us. This posture of, I haven't obtained it all yet, or I've already been made perfect, nope, but I press on. So there's this humility mixed with this godly ambition to keep pushing on, keep running even though it feels like your legs are going to give way. I think that's interesting because I think most of us as Christians think we should either be running and it should feel so good like we've got it all together and we could do this for 10 more miles 
or we stay so focused on the past that we can barely lift our heads up and run. And Paul says it's both. He says, you do acknowledge that you're not there yet, and yet you don't let that stop you from running. And that's what he offers us this morning. First, this posture of a Christian. Please look with me down in verse 12. He says this, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul has just explained that he is better than any Pharisee that they could possibly throw his way. Paul's just gone toe-to-toe with those who were the Judaizers or those who were at least Pharisees saying, we've got the corner of the market on the truth about God. If you want to be serious about your faith, you need to get circumcised. You need to take all the traditions of the Jewish people and you need to make them your own because otherwise you will never catch up to us. And Paul, out of defense of those who are new to the faith and not Jewish, lays down this resume of things that he was born to the right family, he, was, he participated in all of the right practices, that he knows the law better than any of them and that he's shown more zeal than they could possibly imagine. So there are people who are trying to make his people feel small. And Paul says, you want to go? Here's why I'm stronger than you. And when he turns back to his people who are limping and they don't feel like they are worthy, they've been made feel small, he says, look, I'm, I'm talking this way so that they'll realize they have no more right claim to the gospel than you do. But when I'm talking you, to you, those who are limping, he says, I'm not there yet. I'm not all the way there. I don't have it together. I haven't fully made it my own. You see the sweet way that he addresses them. He's talking about the past and the present and the future in this text. And he's saying, I've not arrived yet. I've not arrived One commentator says this, true maturity means knowing you haven't arrived and are not imminently doing so. True maturity means you haven't arrived and are not imminently doing so. And I want you to hear that really deeply because I think the tendency for us is to think once I put away this lust, once I put away this envy, once I put away this slander, once I put away this idolatry, once I put away this Uh, inability to pray and to read the Bible, once I put away all of those things, then I'm going to feel like I've arrived. And Paul is saying part of what makes true spirituality real is that you know you can't arrive. There's always more that you could be doing. There's always more that you could be striving after. There's always more sin that you could lay down. There are those of us in the room who need to be humbled who need to recognize Paul, who had this amazing background. He couldn't keep up with the righteousness of God without faith. So if it's your practice to work as hard as you can so that you can feel at least superior to those around you, it won't be enough. 
It won't be enough. There's always more that you can work on. True spirituality means an acknowledgement that you haven't yet arrived. And yet there are those of you in the room who think true spirituality, I'm never going to get there. I'm nowhere close. And I want you to know that there's something eminently beautiful and Christian and true about that because what you're doing is looking at the righteousness of Christ and looking where you're at on any given day and saying, I'm not there yet. That's an astute observant of a mature Christian. Not that I've arrived, I'm nowhere where I want to be. Forgetting the past and straining towards what is ahead. Now, Paul, remember what Paul did before God turned his life around? He would have watched Christians murdered in front of him. He would have known that he was persecuting Jesus or at least he ultimately would have known that when he was converted. He would have known that he made things difficult for the church. And if Paul dwelt on those things, think about the things I've done in the past, think about the things I did while Stephen was being slaughtered, think about these things, it would undo him. But Paul is saying, forgetting what is behind me and straining towards what is ahead, He's saying, I cannot stare at the past. I have to stare at Jesus. And what I'm telling you today, friends, for those of you who are beaten down by your sin and your bad habits and your suffering, for those of you who have tried so hard to be good only to find out that you're still such a sinner, you have to forget the past and keep striving forward. You will not make progress in your faith by staring at all of the things that you've done wrong. You've got to set it down. Why are you still punishing yourself for something that Jesus was punished for? Forget it. It can't hurt you anymore. It will never be held against you. You will never be called to account for it because Jesus was hurt for it. It was held against Jesus, and Jesus already accounted for it. A few years ago, I was keeping a, a list in my phone of all the serious mistakes I had made as a pastor in my previous church. And it was hidden far away in a note, and there's just these things that I had done as a pastor and as a Christian as I was working at this other church, and I would just sort of keep track of them. And every, every once in a while, I would go back and read through them about somehow at some point I made someone cry or some point I got too worked up at a session meeting or one point I bought a bottle of bourbon for a men's retreat and I realized how insensitive that would be for those any of the hundred dudes at the men's retreat that struggle with alcohol and I just kept this list running here are the mistakes that define my ministry at my old church one time Erin found the note in my phone because my notes are linked to hers. And she didn't delete it. Instead, she went in and she typed, Jared, we've all made mistakes in the past. And you are not defined by them. After that, I deleted the note. Whatever it is that you're holding over your own head. Friends, let go. Jesus doesn't define you by that thing. Why would you define yourself by that thing? He doesn't just forget the past, but he also says to take hold of him. Press on, verse 14. 
I press on toward the goal for the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says, not only do I lay down the past, but I strain towards what is ahead. He says, I press on. Did you see it in there? I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's this beautiful sense where Paul realizes he pushes forward because God's not going to let him go. He's holding on and pressing on, not out of fear, but out of gratitude. Because, it says in verse 12, Christ Jesus has made me his own. So he doesn't press on out of a sense that if I don't, I'm in trouble. He presses on out of a sense that I'm safe and I'm loved. And the reason that I want you to see that is if we do get worked up to try and get after our righteousness, our holiness, we do so out of a fear that God's going to get me or he's going to damage me or he's going to make things harder for me if I don't press on. And Paul's saying, no, yes, you work hard, but you work hard because you get to. You work hard because you're safe. You work hard because you're loved, never because you have to. He says, press on. Don't give up even when it's hard, is what Paul says. I've been meeting with a young man from our church, and over the last few years, this young man has had his life ripped apart in the most difficult and embarrassing and shameful ways. He's just limped. Things that, anything that could go wrong has gone wrong. And I'm always in awe that he keeps showing up. And I asked him, if I were you and I were in your shoes, I wouldn't have kept the faith. I wouldn't still be here. How are you doing this? And he said this to me, leaving never really felt like an option. That sense of, oh, love, that will not let me go. Sure, I'd like to leave, but I literally don't think I can because God won't let go of me. Paul has that sense that you're safe and you'll be loved and that God won't let you go. So don't give on, give up, press on. When you fail, get back up. Don't wallow. When you're surprised at your sin, don't be. It took Jesus' blood to buy you. When you're discouraged at your lack of progress, get going again, not because you have to or because you're in trouble, but because you get to and you're safe. Always chasing, never arriving. And then he says this, that he wants us to be mature. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. He's calling you to maturity, not to perfection. And what was the maturity? Did you hear it in there in 16? Only let us hold true to what we have attained. You'd think he would say, let us hold true so that we can attain this maturity, this righteousness, this perfection. But he says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. It's the sense of it's already yours, now live like it. Further up and further in, as some Bible commentators say, it's already yours, now live like it. He says, following Paul. Not to us, if any one of us were to say, hey, follow after me as I follow off of Jesus, follow after Jesus, we'd be really uncomfortable and think that person thought too much of themselves. 
But Paul knew from his catastrophic failures that he wasn't enough, but that his model of wanting to know Christ and to share in his sufferings and to bring others into that family, that that was a, that was a model worth following. Some of you have heard me tell this story before, but in the mo- excuse me, in the book and then also in the movie Blue Like Jazz, it opens with this phrase. Please hear me, I know it's hard to be read to. I never liked jazz music because jazz music doesn't resolve. But I was outside the Baghdad Theater in Portland one night, and I saw a man playing the saxophone. I stood there for 15 minutes, and the man never opened his eyes. After that, I liked jazz music. Sometimes you have to watch somebody love something before you can love it yourself. It is as if they are showing you the way. Don't you have those people in your life who make Jesus look good to you, who hold on to the grittiness of grace and who still worship, who suffer but still encourage others? And Paul's saying, get near those people. They will lift your spirits. For me, when I'm with that young man I described earlier, it lifts my spirit because I think if he cannot give up after everything he's been through, how could I give up? How could I stop? Friends, if you don't have someone that makes Jesus look big to you, please get near one, and we'll, have, we'll help you with that. But if you do have that, I want you to look for people who need you, who look for people that needs someone to follow, even if you don't feel like you're up for it yet. That we're reaching down, we're reaching back, we're helping others who need to be near someone who makes Jesus look big to them. And he says, stare at those people, watch their example, watch out for the people who have their minds on earthly things, who live as enemies of the gospel of Christ, that they're dis- Destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Don't look at them. Look at Paul and people like him. He says, live as a citizen of heaven. The reason that he uses this terminology is this, in the Roman colonies, it was as if the Romans were supposed to bring Rome to all of the places in the world. It wasn't a colony so that Rome could be safe in a country and kind of board up the walls. It was actually so that Roman culture and Roman rules and Roman laws would go everywhere because of these. And what he's saying is, as the church, we don't board up the walls and get inside the bubble and hide and wait out the storm. What he's saying is is that we try and make what is true about Jesus and his kingdom ever pervasive in the world around us. That we're constantly going out, not bubbling up and coming inward. He's saying... Bring Rome to Philippi? No. He's saying bring Christ to everywhere that you go. Because he can make it happen. He can transform our glorious bodies. He will bring everything that is dead to life. He will restore everything that is ruined. So in conclusion... You have this sense of forgetting what is behind me. I'm not going to stare at my old record anymore, my failures and my losses. I'm not going to stare at that because that won't heal me. I'm going to strain and wear myself out for the future. 
for Jesus, for the kingdom, not because I have to, but because I can, not because I'm afraid, but because I love Jesus. And I'm going to find people near me who I can look at, that they'll make Jesus real to me, big to me. And I'm going to avoid those that are a distraction to me, who make Jesus seem small to me, who make Christianity about rules, about religion, instead of a person. And I'm going to live like a citizen of heaven, not bubbled up and hiding, but bringing heaven to earth. That's why it says, remember in the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, what? As it is in heaven. When Jesus has done so much for us, We are freed and safe to do everything for him. We'll close with this. One of my favorite books of all time is The Count of Monte Cristo. The Count of Monte Cristo, this man who's wrongly accused, is tucked away in prison for a long time, and he finally literally escapes and washes up on the beach. And just as he feels like I'm finally and happily free and he goes running and dancing and he's like, I made it, he realizes that he's surrounded by pirates. And the head pirate explains this to him. He says, I would ask you who you are, but in view of your shredded clothes and the fact that the Chateau d'If is two miles away, I think I know who you are. But he says, listen to this. I have a smuggler and a thief and we have come here to bury alive one of our own. He says, he has stolen from me, and he's a maggot. And he said, but interestingly enough, there are some who are his more loyal friends who thinks that I should grant him mercy, which of course I cannot do. I would quickly lose control of the whole crew. And he says, that's why we're so fortunate that you provide me a way to show a little mercy to that maggot that you see tied up over there, as well at the same time not appearing weak. And as a special treat, the lads will get to see a little sport. And he says, how do I accomplish all that? And he says, well, we watch you and Jacopo fight to the death. If, you're, if you win, it, sorry, if Jacopo wins, we welcome him back to the crew. If you win, I have given this person a chance to live, even if he did not take advantage of it, and you can take his place on the board. And he says this, what if I win and don't want to be a smuggler? And he says, well, I'll slit your throat. I'm a bit shorthanded, but fine. And he says, well, smuggling is the life for me and would be delighted to kill your friend, the maggot. And he said, oh, by the way, he's the best knife fighter I've ever seen. And so they begin to fight the Count of Monte Cristo and Jacobo, and they begin to fight. And very quickly, the Count of Monte Cristo overpowers him. And he's about to stab him with a knife as he's been told to do. And he looks down at Jacopo and he says, don't move an eyelash. And he said to the captain, to the main pirate, he says, look, Jacobo's already suffered enough with the prospect of being buried alive. And the men that wanted to see some sport have seen it. And those who wanted mercy for Jacopo have gotten it. And keeping me in Jacopo, you'll have yet another skilled and sailor fighter for your crew. The pirate thinks for a moment and he says, 
It's a deal. And Jacoba, who's pinned under the Count of Monte Cristo, reaches up and grabs his shoulders and brings him in close. And he says, I swear on my dead relatives, even the ones I'm not too fond of, that you are my man forever. And the Count of Monte Cristo says, I know. You see, when someone lays down their life for you, when you are certain to die, when your story was certainly over, and then all of the second your story's not over and someone rescued you, the only possible response is, I am yours forever. Friends, that's what you're free to do in the gospel. As Jesus has laid down his life for you, you're not supposed to live in shame and wallow in fear and failure, but to look at Jesus and say, Jesus, thank God I am yours forever. Let's pray. Father, help us to forget what is behind us. Each one of us have things in our heads that if we bring to our mind, we will literally cringe with our eyes. Help us to forget what is behind and stare at what is ahead. Jesus has set us free. It's not that we're going to get to go to heaven, but that you're going to bring heaven to earth. Help us to live in that safety and beauty and power. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.